1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, your host for this episode. Today I'm speaking with Marissa Mica about her new book, Africanizing Oncology, Creativity, Crisis, and Cancer in Uganda, published by Ohio University Press in 2021. Marissa Mica is a writer, researcher, and historian ethnographer who focuses on the intersections of science, medicine, technology, and power. Since 2002, she has worked in Eastern and Southern Africa on the politics of global health research. In 2019, she directed the Humanities and Social Sciences program at the University of Global Health Equity, a new health education center in Rwanda. And she is a visiting scholar at the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. Marissa, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Rachel. I'm so happy to be here with you.
1: And I'm very happy that you could be here. To get started, would you tell us something about yourself and how you got involved with the Uganda Cancer Institute?
0: Sure. Um, well, I am a historian and anthropologist uh, who's worked in sub-Saharan Africa in some way, shape or form since the early 2000s. Um, I first started working um, in in South Africa, actually, on issues around HIV treatment access um, in the mid 2000s. And it was at that time that I became really interested in the politics of medical research um, and in particular relationships between researchers in the global south and in the global north. Um, and when I was a ma- and at that time, I was a master's student in public health, thought I was going to be going into technocratic practice, um, but then got much more interested uh, in histories of medicine um, in Africa. Um, So I went to graduate school um, and found out about the Uganda Cancer Institute actually in uh, my first semester in graduate school. I was working in an archive in Philadelphia um, trying to find a project that would help me to orient towards Eastern and Southern Africa um, research issues and found this annual report from 1970. Uh, about a place called the Uganda Cancer Institute that somehow was surviving and thriving in E.D. Uganda. And I thought to myself, cancer research in Africa? This is just too interesting to ignore. Um, So I went to Uganda that summer, and I wound up meeting with the director uh, of the Uganda Cancer Institute, a delightful human being named Dr. Jackson Orem. Um, And I said to him, you know, I'm a PhD student, I'm a historian, I'm an anthropologist, I'm really fascinated by the history of this place. Um, Would you be interested in having a historian and anthropologist write a book about the UCI? And he said, yes, you're actually exactly the person that I've been looking for. Uh, Would you like to start on ward rounds next week? and so I then started shadowing oncologists at the Lymphoma Treatment Center, um, which is mainly a pediatric cancer facility, um, watching ward rounds, and then things spiraled out from there. Um, so that's some brief background about how I got into this line of work.
1: Yeah. And so when he suggested to you that you start on ward rounds the next week, were you prepared? Had you been prepared to stay there? Had you just gone out to have a visit with him and maybe spend a little time and go back or were you prepared to jump right in like that?
0: Yeah. I mean, great, great question. So, um, the life of the graduate student, you know, is that you spend all of the fall and spring reading and applying for grants. And then you get a very small pocket of money that, you know, is like enough to buy like a plane ticket and, um, you know, like a, like a room in a guest hostel for a couple of months on a scoping trip. Um, So when I first met Dr. Jackson, I was on a scoping trip, I guess it was in 2010 for a summer research project. Um, And at the time of his invitation, I knew that I was going to have to uh, apply for bigger field work grants. Um, So at the time I was Ready to jump in, and then there were puzzles around puzzles to assemble around funding, um, getting higher-level institutional approvals, um, and really kind of focusing on a few key research questions um, that I would want to answer during fieldwork.
1: So then you jumped in, and you mentioned that what really interested you was this idea of cancer research in. Africa in Uganda, and one of the central themes in the book is this relationship between cancer research and cancer care at the UCI. Would you describe a bit how cancer research began there?
0: Sure. So the Uganda Cancer Institute really began as a specific uh, Burkitt's lymphoma clinical trials research center. Um, Burkitt's lymphoma is usually is predominantly a pediatric cancer. Um, and it's a cancer that quite normally presents itself in the jaw and sometimes in the viscera of the abdomen. Um, it's grossly disforming and disfiguring. Um, it's usually fatal. Uh, there are complex relationships between Burkitt's lymphoma and Epstein Barr virus. Um, and it's also endemic in most of, um, in, in parts of the continent, which are um, where malaria is also found. Um, and in the 1950s, in Uganda, at Mulago Hospital, uh, there was one surgeon in particular named Dennis Burkett, Who started to notice this very unusual jaw tumor um, and became deeply fascinated by it. Uh, It wasn't surgically. It wasn't something that you could remove surgically. Um, And 1950s, 1960s are the time when new chemotherapy technologies are emerging. So things like cyclophosphamide, vincristine, methotrexate. Um, Through international channels with uh, oncologists from both the United Kingdom and the United States, Burkitt got his hands on some chemotherapy, and it turned out that this lymphoma was just highly responsive to these uh, these cytotoxic drugs. Um, So you would have these remarkable reductions in tumor size, sometimes over a period of 48 hours, just a melting of jaw tumors um, this was extremely exciting to colleagues who were to american colleagues who had been working at the american national cancer institute on issues of pediatric leukemia um, which is a challenging and intractable disease we've gotten much much better at teach at treating pediatric leukemia over the years um, But colleagues in the US were really excited about the curative or at least long-term remission inducing possibilities of these drugs. Um, I can keep going. or Rachel, do you have any questions about what I've offered so far?
1: (laughs) I do have a question about the the miraculous ability of those uh, chemotherapy agents to reduce the tumors? Because it, it seemed like sometimes in the book, they, there would be this miraculous overnight, the tumor would decline so much, but then it might recur, the, the cancer might recur. So what was the long-term effect of those chemotherapies?
0: Sure. So um, again, I'm not an oncologist, and it's been a while since I looked at the data. But in over 50% of the patients who were treated at this institute in the 1960s, 1970s, um, there was a long term durable chemotherapy, or there was a long term durable remission. Um, And I believe that it's much higher now. Burkitt's lymphoma survival in the United States is now, I believe, somewhere over 90%. Um, At the UCI, there are still challenges, mainly due to the fact that patients still present quite late. Um, So Burkitt's lymphoma might be misdiagnosed as an infected tooth, um, or it might be interpreted as an act of um, misfortune or somebody wishing you well that winds up then manifesting itself in illness. Um, so oftentimes patients may still come to the Institute quite late, uh, drugs may or may not be available in the incorrect combinations. Um, but overall still stories of Burkitt's lymphoma remission and cure at this Institute are, are really surprising, um, and quite remarkable.
1: Yeah. So I can see why that would have been really exciting to, Uh, American researchers, and and there were British researchers involved also, is that right?
0: Yes, that's correct. Um, So the UCI really began as as a robust partnership between the American National Cancer Institute, the British um, Empire Cancer Campaign, and then the Ugandan government itself. Uh, So from day one, it was really the Ugandan Ministry of Health uh, that you know, that that basically welcomed these groups of external researchers, right? They they donated the facility uh, where the Lymphoma Treatment Center was established. Um, Americans were welcomed as specific guests. And I would say also that the American National Cancer Institute members and also the um, kind of expatriate British colonial surgeons, particularly the director of surgery at the time, uh, Sir Ian McAdam, were really invested in training Ugandans. Um, You know, this was never a collaboration that, uh, you know, that was meant to be completely extractive. Um, It was very much invested in capacity building for cancer research in the country.
1: Yeah, and so that gets us into the idea of colonialism. And in the introduction, you use this marvelously evocative phrase. And when I read it, I thought, oh, she's a brilliant writer, and you are. But as I learned, that phrase is part of an analytical approach focused on the actual scientific stuff that's been left on the the junk heap, as it were, of post-colonial Africa but you declined to dwell in the failure implied by those junk heaps. So how did you feel inspired to move beyond, uh, in your own words, accounts of failure, exploitation, technocratic bumbling, and untimely death in contemporary African health settings when you were telling the tale of the UCI?
0: Thank you so much, that's a great question. Um, So on this issue of imperial debris or colonial debris, um, for this, this really comes out of work done by the anthropologist Ann Stoller, um, and a longtime historian of Africa, um, uh, by the name of Nancy Rose Hunt. Um, and I would say that over like the past decade or past decade and a half, there's just been a flurry of really fabulous work um that's been done on the history of health and healing in africa and a lot of it has focused on scientific research um and a lot of it has kind of i would say focused on this question of well what was the afterlife of colonial medical projects Um, what is the afterlife of something like a scientific capacity building project? Um, So like Noemi Toussignan recently wrote a fabulous book on Senegalese toxicologists and their struggles for capacity. Um, And a lot of this work does wind up focusing on kind of junk and detritus or improvisation or spaces of medical care, um, where things are not working um and you know when i started this project and when i was researching um in uganda in 2012 uh there was a critical book that came out on the his on that was an ethnography of cancer in botswana um called improvising medicine by julie livingston beautiful 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 book um an artfully rendered and kind of heartbreaking story of what happens when you try to provide oncology in a place where so many things are missing. Um, you know, but in, in engaging with all of these works, I don't f- I didn't feel that in the setting that I was working in, if I was only going to focus on broken things or if I was only going to focus on things that weren't working, um, that I would not be giving my colleagues their due. Um, because they're getting up and making things work every single day. Uh, Dr. Jackson, the director of the institute, you know, is there at like eight o'clock in the morning, does not leave until eight o'clock in the evening, is hustling to get government funding, is applying for grants to build out an East African Center of Excellence. Dr. Fred Okuku, you know, is on the phone trying to get blood from down in Mulago. Dr. Joyce, you know, is figuring out how to make, you know, space for beds for very sick pediatric patients. Um, this is a place where things are working, and they're working remarkably well in the face of um, shortages, challenges, late stage illness. Um, and I, I really did want to give my colleagues their due. Uh, and I hope that came alive in the pages for you. It did,
1: and it actually felt, although you describe sometimes graphically the, you know, the, the the suffering that the children and families had related to their cancer, it was a very inspiring, I would say, tale overall for the reasons that you cite. And I kind of wanted to move into that in, in Chapter 2, which is called A Hospital Built from Scratch. You described the Lymphoma Treatment Center, or LTC in its early days. And one important aspect of care there was that not only the sick child, but the entire family was cared for in one way or another by the hospital. And how was this kind of social support critical for the patient's survival?
0: Sure, that's a great question. Um, So the Lymphoma Treatment Center, which started in 1967, um, was originally designed to just be a Burkitt's Lymphoma clinical trials facility. The raison d'etre of this center was to just simply see whether or not different chemotherapy combinations would induce long-term remissions for pediatric patients. And there was a whole apparatus that made this possible, Um, caseworkers who would go to villages, uh, elaborate recruitment, elaborate patient recruitment, um, you know, warm collaborations with the pathology department. Uh, But what American oncologists realized within six months of opening up this facility that was supposed to be a clinical trials facility is that the families that they were working with... You know, were farmers. They often had five to six to eight other children they were taking care of. Um, chemotherapy treatments are really long. They usually take between eight months and a, or six months and a year of various cycles. Um, so parents had a lot of anxiety about um, about pulling their kids from pulling their kids from school and having them be treated at this facility. Um, And so the hospital director, or rather the UCI director at the time, Dr. John Ziegler, realized that if they were to provide services um, for families who were here at the Institute taking care of children, um, that is, if they were to provide care for whole families rather than just the individual patient, um, they were going to get much better research results uh, because then they would have fewer patients lost to follow up Um, and they would also wind up supporting families so that they wouldn't wind up facing destitution or some sort of economic crisis to engage um, in these trials Um, i mean in eastern africa southern africa western africa like your family is like you know, not only your health insurance, but they're also like your nursing staff, they're your cook, they're your laundromat. Um, you know, if you go to Mulago Hospital today, you will see that families are coming and really providing the bulk of day-to-day nursing care and supportive care on the wards. Um, so I would say that, you know, John Ziegler was not only a brilliant oncologist. I mean he's actually still alive, uh, but he was also a brilliant anthropologist of medicine. Um, he and his colleagues really recognized that therapy management groups, family management groups are central um, to care in this region.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like with the the resources that were available, the the cancer institutes really couldn't uh, provide full care without the family's participation. So, um, caring for the families benefited them in that way as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my mother, uh, unfortunately just had a skin cancer operation a couple weeks ago. Right. And, and, um, you know, her supportive care has been so good that I haven't been able or that I haven't been required to be there, kind of hand and foot taking care of her. Um, but if she had had the same surgery um, in Uganda, even at this time, there would be like an army of people to come and take care of her, change her bandages, go down, and get her medication, you know, all of the, you know, prepare her meals, like change her bedding, all of these different things. Um you know that we usually think of in the global north as being, you know, kind of part of a healthcare package. Um, it looks a little bit different and works a little bit differently in this context.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. Well, we think that's where all of our insurance premiums are going to <laughs> to pay for the pay for the artwork on the walls and the Starbucks in the lounge. Um, very different. So there were many challenges you describe at the UCI. Uh, One of the challenges that the staff faced was war. And sometimes they were literally dodging bullets, but there were also more subtle effects of war that you highlight. And one example is what you call people's embodied experiences of war, shaping their perception of cancer treatments. And this is particularly interesting to me because as you point out in the book, we have this controversy in the global north about using battle metaphors for cancer patients, but battle metaphors were apt in this setting. And I wonder how can these metaphors, for instance, uh, something called Saba Saba that maybe you'll describe, help our understanding of oncology in Uganda?
0: Absolutely. So for those of you who are listening, um, who might need a little bit of like a Uganda 101 history lesson, Um, Uganda independence happened in 1962. The UCI was open in 1967. In 1971, Idi Amin took over in a coup. And in 1972, all of the the foreign expatriate UCI staff left, leaving the institute um, under the direction of an extraordinary African oncologist named Dr. Charles Olweni. Um, And Charles Olweni and his team kept the Institute open during Idi Amin's tenure, uh, which ended in 1979 um, with an invasion by the Tanzanian army that's also been called a War of Liberation. Um, And then there was a civil war in Uganda between early 1980s up to 1986 when Ueri Museveni came into power. Um, And he's still the president of Uganda today. Um, this war that happened between in the Tanzanian invasion and afterwards uh, was devastating and frightening. Um, And during this time, especially with the invading Tanzanian army, um, there were kind of many, there were many days of, of, I would say, wartime uncertainty. Um, And, the UCI stayed open in the 1980s, and it also stayed open during the war. Um, and I'll just read to you um, one memory of one of the individuals who worked at the UCI um, as a medical officer in charge of the Lymphoma Treatment Center. Um, and she describes the relationship between chemotherapy and um, between the experiences of chemotherapy and this, um, and these kind of wartime memories in the following way. Uh, she says when there was the war in Uganda, the Tanzanians, when they came for this liberation, they had this big gun, which used to throw the bombs and we called it Saba Saba. Um, and Saba Saba in this case is a Katusha rocket launcher, which is like a Soviet um, rocket launcher weapon. Um, and the patients named this drug Saba Saba. The chemotherapy it would hit them. The hair goes out. The next day they are anemic. They are weak. Some would vomit when hit by the drug, so they called it Saba Saba. Nobody told you they would come for their Saba Saba, and it would really hit them. Um, and you know, when I did this interview uh, with this um, with this neonatologist, you know, she. She was rhythmically snapping her fingers to punctuate the way chemotherapy treatments violently hit the body. Wow. Um, I thought the history of these rocket of this rocket launcher analogy was so fascinating and, you know, kind of did a deep dive on the ways in which the Soviet military technology was then reappropriated in cold war arm races or cold war arm races. Um Yeah. And, you know, there is this kind of American oversaturation of cancer being a constant war. Um, And, you know, I would say that the battle metaphors are very overwrought in an American context. I agree with I agree with Susan Sontag. Um, But I found this to just be such an evocative and historically specific analogy um, to talk about embodied memory um, and, you know, if you talk to individuals who are receiving, um, chemotherapy treatments at the Institute today, uh, they will not say that they're getting Saba Saba, you know, this is a very historically specific metaphor. They'll just say that they're getting chemo, uh, you know, or impisto mukaga, which means six shots in Luganda. Um, this memory of the war has very much faded, uh. uh but I did just find it deeply fascinating and arresting. Um, And I still think that these rocket launchers are a perfect way of describing um, some of the more violent effects of these treatments on the body, uh, particularly in a place where anti-emetics are not always available. um, And, and, you know, drugs are off patent or generic and everything's even a little bit tougher uh, than it would be otherwise.
1: Yeah, and you describe that quite graphically in some points. And it's a bit different, isn't it, than the, the battle metaphors in the States? Because here people would say, well, I'm going to fight this and I'm going to win this battle. Whereas saying I've been hit by this Soviet rocket launcher is a bit different. It's saying that's the effect this has had on me versus I'm a warrior and I'm going to kick ass in this uh, in this battle
0: yeah absolutely and i i would say that there are kind of some more there since i've been working at the institute for the past 10 years i would say that there is a little more of like a global north like we're going to win this we're going to battle this you know we're going to survive this um there's more of that language than there used to be um But I agree. There is something very evocative um, and and kind of has uh, both a gorgeous and kind of heartbreaking texture about what these experiences actually are um, and how people cope with it and how people think about it and how people experience this. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and so kind of staying on the subject of of language and how it's used, um, in chapter five, you tell the tale of this very beleaguered piece of technology, which is a cobalt-60 machine used for radiation therapy that lasted well past its use-by date. Um, In fact, it wasn't in very good shape when it got there, I believe to the UCI, but in the chapter, you tell us that there is no word for junk in Luganda. And you refer to the machine yourself as junk, but the hospital staff did not. So I wonder how does this difference in cognitive approach of not having the language to describe the concept of junk or not using that affect how the staff kept things going under the most difficult circumstances?
0: Absolutely. So, um, I would say that, um, so the radiotherapy story in, in the book is really interesting and I hope that readers spend some time with it. Um, and if you don't feel like reading the whole book, uh, there's also, it's also written up, um, as a separate piece for technology and culture. Um, but this is basically a chapter that explores and traces the history of a donated re- of a donated radiotherapy machine and the ways in which a set of Ugandan individuals, um, you know, the director of radiotherapy at Mulago, um, a mechanic named, uh, a mechanic that I call Mr. T, you know, how do you keep a donated piece of Chinese equipment functioning in a setting that's dusty uh where parts are being stolen um you know where the vacuum seal uh in the machine breaks and you know that you're not going to be able to order a spare part so you go down to the kampala auto junkyard instead and pull an oil seal to improvise as a vacuum seal um when i and you know i i spent a lot of time talking with my colleagues about like well how would you describe this machine um, in Luganda? Yes, there is no word for junk. Uh, you would describe something as old or very old, like, enkadeño, you know, it's very old in Luganda. That's the language that we have. Um, I really wanted to use the word junk because I wanted to, Highlight to readers who might be working or sitting in the global north and being like, well, why is Mulago working with an old radiotherapy machine, you know, in the mid 2000s, you know, why are they using this, you know, piece of beleaguered equipment? Um, And it's like, well, it's because this is what the global north decided to donate to this particular context. Um, the international atomic energy association you know in an effort to control costs you know procured a secondhand machine that was a little bit rickety perhaps not the best piece of equipment for the job you know kind of a piece of junk and then expect that colleagues are and then expect that ugandan colleagues are going to be able to keep it going throughout um you know kind of indefinitely so to speak um you know we and this i think segues into conversations and critiques about appropriate technology um and you know an an informant of uh paul farmer at one point you know who was a haitian priest you know, it's talking about kind of the latest piece of technology transfer that had happened in Haiti. And he looked to Paul one day and he was like, look, like, do you know what appropriate technology is? It means shit for poor people and good things for the rich. You know, I'm inverting that quote a little bit. Um, but, you know, this idea of shit for the poor and good things for rich people. Um, I really wanted to bring that to the surface because, um, Even if you're writing a scholarly book, I still think that there's a place for activism. Um, I wanted to have a conversation. I wanted this to be evocative. I wanted Americans who might be in the global oncology space to read this and to take pause and to ask themselves, well, how can we do better? Um, So I hope that answers your question. I know I've been rambling on it quite a bit. Mm
1: No, it does and I'm so glad you brought up the definition of appropriate technology because I was trying to recall exactly what that quote was. And I wanted to ask you about it. Um, And I completely agree with you about the place for activism within academic work as well. So glad you brought that up also. And you've named a number of characters. In the book, you describe... Uh, even more, really compelling people who kept the Institute going over the years. And I wonder if there's anyone in particular that stands out to you.
0: Oh, my goodness. So um, I once commented to a friend you know, that fieldwork is only made possible by strangers who become friends over time. Um, And it's so hard for me to choose one individual um, who's been central to the Uganda Cancer Institute. Um, All of the UCI directors, so Dr. John Ziegler, Dr. Charles Olweni, Dr. Edward Katongale Mbide, Dr. Jackson Orem, uh, Dr. Joyce, the pediatric oncologist, Uh, Dr. Fred Okuku, late tumor oncologist, um, Dr. Nolib Mugisha, um, who runs uh, community outreach and kind of cancer screening prevention, Um, all of the patients and their families. Um, But one person in particular who I'd really like to highlight is a man named Aloysius Kusule, uh, who was, a medical officer who worked at the Uganda Cancer Institute in the 1960s and was responsible for patient recruitment and follow-up. And Aloysius is an extraordinary individual. Uh, He speaks about 40 of the common languages in Uganda. Um, He is incredibly savvy in meeting with patient parents. Um, he would some to, he would drive in a Volkswagen Beetle across Uganda, working on patient follow-up. Um, he'd meet with village chiefs. He'd, you know, explain the work that the Uganda Cancer Institute was doing. Um, he would also then meet with families and go very meticulously through an informed oral consent process. Um, to explain Burkitt's lymphoma treatment to these families and then work to take these patients back, um, to Kampala for treatment. Um, and during the 1970s, like at the UCI, he kept sugar and soap and salt coming at a time when scarcity was so intense, um, you know, he was putting his life on the line every day, going to interact with Amin soldiers, um, running this, running the day-to-day administration of this facility um, with uh, with with care and courage. Um, you know, he eventually went into a bit of a self-imposed exile. Um, because he was worried about uh, the political situation in Uganda. And, you know, today is a farmer who runs a small clinic. Um, but without Aloysius and everyone who works there agreed, like this place wouldn't have started. Um, he is an unsung hero. Uh, and um, you can actually read a bit about him in chapter one, or I guess in chapter two, Um it's, uh yeah he's i just had a uh, the absolute pleasure uh of spending an afternoon with him talking about his memories of going deep into the bush uh which were his words not mine
1: so he won't be unsung now uh not entirely
0: no <laughs> and when you met him how old was he oh goodness probably in his late 60s early 70s um i'm hoping one of his colleagues uh who also works as a patient outreach coordinator and administrator tom -tom tomu um has unfortunately recently passed away so i won't be able to give him a, a copy of the book um but tom's also extraordinary um yeah i mean the the book offers up just a tip of the iceberg in terms of the characters who made this place possible.
1: Uh, Yeah. And, and there were many that you describe in the book. Um, So I'd like to jump to the present now. And since 2015, you mentioned the affiliations with the national cancer Institute in the States before they left at some point point. But since 2015, there's been a joint project with the UCI and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle, also known as Fred Hutch. And about that relationship and the future in general, you venture a prediction at the end of the book. Would you tell us what is your prediction and what does it say about oncology in Uganda, past and present?
0: Sure. So, um Readers, I don't know about you, but especially when I'm reading an academic book, I just go to the end. I read the introduction in the beginning, so I'll do it for you. So my prediction. Historians do not like to make predictions, but I'll venture one here. Social, political, epidemiological, economic, and scientific circumstances well beyond the control of the staff and patients at the UCI will in all likelihood continue to impact this facility in the next half century. Ugandan citizens will continue to contend with malignancies on the wards and malignant states. Committed Ugandans, these physician intellectuals, will keep these new investments in cancer services going long after this latest international research partnership with the Fred Hutch comes to a close or changes. Research is a resource, but it is one fundamentally situated in the temporal shifts of politics, economics, scientific priorities, and personal relationships. Um, And Rachel, I think this goes back to our earlier conversation about junk and debris and detritus. Um, The prediction that I'm trying to make is that, you know, rather than thinking about you know, like a linearity in terms of capacity building projects, you know, or some sort of like teleological future, things are always changing in ways that we cannot predict. Um, You know, when I was writing this book a year ago, or when I was finishing this book a year ago um, and getting it ready for copy editing, uh, you know, I couldn't predict that it was going to be such a challenge to figure out how to bring the book to Uganda in the middle of, a global pandemic, Um, nor was I surprised when I found out that my Ugandan colleagues were very strategically and savvily figuring out how to still provide cancer care in the middle of this global pandemic. Often by charting buses for cancer patients so they could still come to the Institute for treatment and make it back to their homes um, despite curfew issues that the Ugandan state was implementing for, um, for COVID control a year ago. Um, You know, most of the American collaborators that I wrote about in this book, in particular, Corey Casper, who's a fabulous human being, um, you know, left the UCI, went on, did other things with his life. um, you know, mzungus come and mzungus go, but it's ultimately the Ugandans who stay and make this place work. Um, So I have no idea what things are going to look like in the next 50 years, other than the fact that this place will still be standing, I imagine.
1: And when you say mzungus, you mean white people, right?
0: yeah, white people, those who travel or those who, um, those who wander. (laughs) It's like, that's the other definition of it. Um, So, and I think it's pretty apt. (laughs)
1: Yes. Um, You know, I was really intrigued by that phrase. Research is a resource. And it struck me that it's a resource that benefits, well, I don't want to say just that benefits both sides, but I mean, you could look at it two ways. Research is a resource that the Global North has helped to provide to the UCI. But on the other hand, the UCI has given them the wherewithal to do research that was very important to the Global North. So it's, it's something that's, seems to me works from both sides and could possibly be exploited, but but wasn't. I mean, let me put it this way. Sometimes you hear about, let's say, vaccine trials taking place in Africa from pharmaceutical companies that are based in Europe or the United States. And there's sometimes some Another word I'm trying to come up with. Let's say people, some people don't like that. Um, there's there's talk about the harm that that does to the people who are being studied. But in this case, it doesn't seem like that's uh, that's a component of this story. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So research is our resource is the Uganda Cancer Institute's current slogan. I mean, it's literally on the sign that welcomes you when you come to the compound. Um, research is the resource, the that, resource that's brought new capital investments. Research is the resource that has brought better clinical out- outcomes for Burkitt's lymphoma. Um, research is the resource that is changing the way that we treat and think about keratosis sarcoma and um, human papilloma virus. Um, you know, in in African history, there's this whole kind of dynamic that, with healing, so too is always going to come harming. You know, you can't you can't untether those you can't untether those things. Like you can't have one without the other. Um, you know, you can't have creativity without destruction. Um, so I think. And, and I think that this is a place where, you know, there's a whole book that I wish that I had been able to write about the perspective of the Burkitt's lymphoma patients who were receiving care and treatment at Mulago by Dennis Burkitt and others in the 1950s and into the 1960s. I so wish that I could get into a time machine and go back and ask about the racist and, or the racial and paternalist politics of all of this. Um, I wish that I had had, I, you know, I wish I could get into a time machine and could have sat down and interviewed patients and their families about what sort of consent processes were actually being taken. Um, You know, I know that when, American colleagues at the National Cancer Institute came and set up the infrastructure for the Institute in the 1960s, that, you know, they were adamant that they were going to bring in informed consent, uh, you know, that things were going to be done above board in terms of treatment randomization. Um and I would say that you know there was also that ethical innovation of recognizing the fact that they were going to need to financially and economically and socially support families um, of patients. Um, and I do think that there's, so there's so much that we just don't know <laughs> um, about the history of this place. Um, but I wanted to leave it ambiguous. I don't have the answers. Um, and I think that it's actually not my place, but rather the place of Ugandan writers and Ugandan researchers to, um, to really center and talk about these ethics uh, to talk about um, to talk about research ethics. Um, and to talk about what is ethical in these situations, um, you know, I'm struggling with the ethics of like, how do I make this book that I, you know, that's been like published in global North channels, like how do I make it available in the, you know, in, in this place that I work, you know, how, what are the ethics of when and how to return to Uganda? Um, you know, what needs to be done long distance, what can only be done in person, um, there's so much ambiguity in these relationships and they're always shifting.
1: Mm. And that's interesting because that's always a a consideration of research too, is once it's done, it's supposed to be made available to everybody. Um,
0: Well, there's a lot that still needs to be done in terms of the decolonization of academic publishing in order for that to happen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) And probably in research as well
0: for sure
1: so uh, we've taken up a lot of your time marissa but i wanted to ask you one last question which is uh, what are you working on now
0: well it's actually this question of what are we talking about when we're talking about decolonizing global health um as you mentioned i worked in rwanda for a year directing medical humanities at a new um at a new medical school, um, which is a very complicated partnership between the Rwandan government, Harvard medical school, um, partners in health. Um, you know, McKinsey consultants actually came in and, and initially were the ones to kind of put forth the business model. Um, and I've just been thinking a lot about what it means to, um, make global health partnerships more equitable. Um, what does it actually mean to change medical education, um, you know, from below? Um, and so that's, you know, pretty much where I, where I think I'm going to be working on, or what I'm going to be working on. I, I want to be thinking about, about this, um, And the other thing that I am working on um, is gearing up for the Uganda Cancer Institute's 55th anniversary um, and doing uh, a set of celebrations around this remarkable institution Um, and also thinking about what can be done to pay forward some of the lessons that I hope are clear in this book. and how to perhaps ensure that this book winds up being a tool of advocacy um, for improving pediatric oncology outcomes in Eastern, Southern, and Central Africa.
1: That sounds wonderful. And I can see why you want to get it out uh, in Africa as well, for sure. So uh, the book is Africanizing Oncology, Creativity Crisis and Cancer in Uganda published by Ohio University Press. And I, if you start reading it, you will not be able to just read the first chapter and the last as Marissa does, because (laughs) you want to find out everything that's in between. It's an extraordinary history. And Marissa, thank you so much for coming on and and speaking with us about it today.
0: Uh, Thank you again, Rachel, for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, And thanks again for being such a thoughtful and engaged reader.
1: Well, it's my pleasure.